Wow, that pun works in a lot of different ways, guys. And I'm really happy with that, with Black on the Air at this point. It was just a straight pun at first, but now there's so many deeper meanings. <laughs> no, there really aren't. I just like it. It just makes me laugh. Nice to be back. We're off for a week. Um, really, really fun conversation with the very talented Issa Ray coming up a little later on. Uh, Star of Insecure, a show which I was very fortunate to co-create with her. We, we just have a fun conversation. We, re- we talk about some really interesting stuff, especially how the show has gotten a lot of, a lot of talk and attention around uh, the issue of cheating, especially from a female point of view. I think you guys will really enjoy it. It was really, really fun. Uh, Issa's great. We had a fun talk. Man, so much stuff happens when we're just down for a week. So here's the thing, because a lot of people wonder when it's posting, when it's not, I basically do like three podcasts in a row, like three weeks in a row, and then one week off, three in a row, row, one week off. So we're trying that, seeing how that goes. So far, it works pretty good because I have to kind of juggle my whole schedule with this. So I hope you guys like that kind of three, three off, three off, three off, Um, because a lot of people are wondering, where's the podcast, Larry? It's not there. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, It was so funny. I remember uh, back in the Daily Show days when I was the senior black correspondent, uh, whenever the, and by the way, when I was doing that, I was like a part-timer on the Daily Show because I lived in LA and I would go out to do that. And it was so much fun, you know. It was like I was moonlighting on the Daily Show, if you can imagine such a thing, right? But it wasn't like I was there all the time and I was working full-time on the show. You know, I was kind of part-time. But the Daily Show would take periodic breaks. You know, they'd be off for a week and that sort of thing. And people would blame me. They would say, Larry, what the hell's going on? Why is the Daily Show not on? Please put it back on. I said, guys, I don't schedule the show. I don't work at the network. I'm the senior black correspondent. Give me a break. But they were always so hungry for John's uh, take on the news, you know, which, yeah, I felt the same way, you know. But anyhow, I appreciate that. And thank you once again for all the great attention of the show, people tweeting about it, talking about it. Uh, sharing it with your friends, let everybody know. Larry, when we're black on the air, we're out there having some great conversations and that sort of thing and having a lot of fun. Man, so much happened this past week. Uh, the highlight of it uh, was the mooch uh, getting the boot. President officially booted the mooch. He lasted about about the length of a antibiotics prescription, I think. It was about 10 days or something like that. It was unbelievable. It was such a whirlwind, too. I mean, I know a lot of comedians have covered this already. <laughs> Late night people. I mean, the interview that he did, <laughs> I think, in The New Yorker, <laughs> it was just so out of control. And to me, when I look at the mooch and what all that energy was, to me, he was like Trump concentrate. You know, he was like a concentrated version of Trump, which is ironic because Trump cannot concentrate. It's the one thing Trump can't do. But if you could just squeeze Trump into just a little ball of energy, it was the mooch. That was exactly what it was. It was always, it was all the worst parts of Trump, which once again is kind of uh, not a completely accurate statement because I believe all the aspects of Trump are the worst parts of Trump. <laughs> and I know, hey, I am going to pick on Trump. If anybody's out there saying, hey, Larry, lay off Trump, that's not going to happen here, okay? I am going to be attacking Trump all the time I'm on. I am not going to let up. 
But anyhow, it's just my head spins at the things that happen. And uh, I'm going to come back to it in a little bit. But first, I want to talk a little, a little bit about sports for my sports fans. You guys know I'm a big Laker fan. Love my Lakers. And, uh, you know, the big prospect for the Lakers coming next year is Lonzo Ball. So a lot of non-sports fans, Lonzo Ball, is, he's this unbelievable prodigy of a player, played at UCLA. He's like the second coming of a Magic Johnson. He's a great passer. He has an amazing court vision. He's just really talented in a unique way. He's not one of those um, hoggy players that needs the ball all the time, shooting a thousand shots. He really shares the ball, you know. And so he makes all the other players great. But his father, LeVar Ball is this unbelievable publicity hound and he cannot stop boasting and talking and he, he just sucks all the energy and he's been very controversial and people have made comments about him and that kind of stuff. And uh, I'm just getting tired of his act right now and I just want him to stop. I really do. I'm not on the LeVar train. I'm just, right now I'm standing, I'm not on the LeVar train. And there's a couple of reasons. First of all, you know, I don't like the way he sucks all the energy from his son. I mean, I feel like he's like a Denny's pancake. He just sucks all the syrup out of the air that's there for his son. A Denny's pancake will suck every little bit of syrup off of that plate into the pancake. And this is what he is in my mind. All that syrup that's meant for his son, he's sucking right in to his own pancake. I know that metaphor makes no sense at all, you guys. It makes no sense at all. But if you're hungry, there you go. A little something for you. But also, I don't like the fact when people say, well, let's first say he's a good dad. No. What do you mean let's first say he's a good dad? Let's not say that first. Let's first say he's he's a loudmouth asshole. How about that? Why do we have to first say he's a good dad? It's like because he's black, we have to prove he's a good dad. I mean, as Chris Rock said, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be a good dad. We don't need to overprove that he's a good dad. There are plenty of examples of good black fathers out there, regardless of what the media would like you to believe by their portrayal of bad black fathers or absent black fathers. You know, we don't need to overprove this, guys. You know, that's not the first thing. From my point of view, somebody who acts like he does, and I'll give you an example for those of you who are not familiar. He coaches this AAU team, which is a traveling high school basketball team, and he was the coach of it, and his behavior was so horrible. There's a female referee, and he, like, berated her, told her she was... I think out of shape or something like that. She shouldn't be refereeing. And I think he threatened to either take his team. I think he was mad at a couple of calls or something like that, but he was threatening like to either take his team away or have her removed. It was something like that. And she was treated horribly. This is a horrible example of how any coach at any level should act. It's a horrible example for his players. It's a horrible example for his son who was playing on that team these are not the traits of a good father, you guys. Stop saying, let's first say he's a good father. That is a horrible trait for a good father. Someone who is in front of these young men, giving an example of demeaning a woman, okay? Sorry, I'm not on that train. It's not funny. I don't find it charming. I don't find anything about it that is appealing. And he needs to stop right now. It's, I mean, it's, it's more superficial to say he should stop because his son should be successful. But it's very important to say he should stop because this is not good. This is a horrible example. And I don't like that. This whole coddling of him and treating him like he needs to be reckoned with, he doesn't. He, he only gets this oxygen because, you know, 
we're acting like, you know, we need to give it to them. We really don't. All we need to do is pay attention to Lonzo. I don't mind people boasting. So the whole boasting part of LeVar, I don't mind so much, right? That part is not the bad example part. It's not my thing. I don't really care for it that much. I liked it when Ali did it, but Ali did it in a, in a completely different context. When Muhammad Ali was boastful, it was at a time both when athletes were, they did that fake shy thing. Well, I don't know, you know, we're just going to try our best and give it our best and go out there and blah, 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 blah. And athletes were never like boastful, not in any sport. But at least he, he looked at Gorgeous George, who was this wrestler, this larger than life wrestler, who used to really boast and say he was going to do this and that. And he got people would boo him. And, he, and yet the stadiums were filled because people came to boo him. And Ali saw that as a way to hype fights. And uh, he saw it as a method to promote himself. The other side of it was for black athletes and for black men in general in society, the fact that you would be unapologetic in your spirit and your confidence and that sort of thing was something that just wasn't done. And so Ali, on both sides of that, and the other part of it, Ali was talking about himself and he backed it up was the other thing. So from that aspect, I loved boasting, you know, and I thought it was great for Ali. But boasting is in our culture. You know, it's something that is part of who we are. A lot of it is in hip hop culture. I love hip hop, but a lot of the boasting in hip hop just makes me laugh where a lot of hip hop music is based on how I'm the best at this and you're not, or I have these things and you don't, you know, that's a lot of music. I'm like, why are you, why are we singing about this? How is this a point of view? I mean, even Jay-Z still does that. Jay-Z, you're married to Beyonce for Christ's sake. You don't have to overprove that you have shit that we don't at this point. Everybody is keenly aware of it, but that's part of the hip hop culture. I get it. A lot of it is tongue in cheek. It's fun. And I get it. It's fun when you're a kid to, to do all that. You know, but that culture in general, I'm not a big fan of, you know, which leads us back to our president, the, as I like to call him, the orange Julius Caesar, the mango Mussolini, uh, the pulpy Pol Pot, if you will, the puffy pulpy Pol Pot. There you go. There's some good alliteration. I'm just going to keep coming up with these. Send them to me, too. If you have ideas for how to describe Trump, that would be a fun game. Uh, matching, matching your favorite dictator, <laughs> your favorite fascist leader to Trump with maybe a color or a quality or something like that, you know. So, so just choose someone out. Yeah, here's a couple of examples. Find one for Genghis Khan. OK, let's see who can give me a good one for Genghis Khan. Everybody go for it. Send it to me on Twitter. That'd be a lot of fun. At Larry Wilmore. So Trump, of course, is the boaster in chief. And. More importantly, he is the liar in chief. Okay. I'm going to keep stressing to you guys that Trump is a liar. Okay. I'm not going to mince words on this. He's more than a boaster. He lies. And I, I talked about <laughs> one of my earlier podcasts, the different types of lying that he does. But at the heart of it, Trump just lies. What's insidious about this is that it's becoming so matter of fact and normalized that pe a lot of people don't care anymore or they let it go. And that really worries me a lot. 
I don't want us to turn, I don't want us to be institutionalized on his lying. I don't want us, this country, to become Morgan Freeman from Shawshank Redemption, you guys, where you're just happy to stay in prison and you don't care about escaping with your friend. No, escape with your friend. Find that Rita Hayworth poster. I think it was Rita Hayworth. Find that, that poster and get out now, you know. Don't let these lies institutionalize us, all right? And I'll give you an example. Jay Nordlinger uh, had an article in the National Review, I think it was today, and he talks about this, although his point of view is, does it matter? And my answer is yes. I'll read a little bit of it. He says, uh, the president was talking about the speech he had given to the Boy Scouts. He said, I got a call from the head of the Boy Scouts saying it was the greatest speech that was ever made to them, and they were very thankful. The Scouts organization says there was no call. In fact, the head of the Scouts, Michael Serval, issued a statement apologizing to the scouting committee for the for the partisan political nature of Trump's speech. The Boy Scouts are apologizing for the president, you guys. The Boy Scouts. He should be apologizing to them. The Boy Scouts are saying, sorry, sorry for inviting the president. We really apologize to the American people and to the Boy Scouts. And, but, and Trump lies about, about this thing that is easily looked up. That's the other thing. Here's another example from the same article. Earlier, the president had talked about the speech he had given in Warsaw. Enemies of mine are saying it was the greatest speech ever made on foreign soil by a president. Is that true? Have enemies said that? Earlier, the president had talked about the speech he had given in Congress. Some people say it was the single best speech ever made in that chamber. Is that true? Did anyone say that? Does it matter? And he says, go back to the 2016 campaign. Just three statements out of the many amazing ones. Trump said he had received a letter from the NFL complaining about the scheduling of presidential debates because they conflicted with football games. The NFL said, we sent no such letter. Trump also said that the Koch brothers were mad at him because he had refused to meet with them. The Koch said they had requested no such meeting. On the contrary, the Trump campaign had requested a meeting with them. Think about it, guys. We are on the Koch brothers' side. <laughs> That's what Trump has done to this. I am siding with the Koch brothers on this. In a GOP primary debate, Trump spoke of Putin. I remember this. This was hilarious. I got to know him very well because we were both in 60 Minutes. We were stable mates. Is that true? Again, does it matter, he asked? Okay. My answer to this is yes, it does matter. And please pay attention. These lies, they're not just outrageous and ridiculous. They're important, guys. They're horrible examples of civility. They're not presidential. Is it is not an exemplar of the type of person who should be leading this country. We have to call it out at all times. Just like calling out LeVar Ball and his boasting and the example he's setting to kids is horrible. This president is setting a similar example for the young people of this country and for all of us. And he needs to stop. And I don't, I don't care if his followers, like people say this, well, I don't care if he lies. I just listen to what he's really saying. What he's really saying is a lie. That's what he's really saying. Okay. So don't give me that bullshit. I just listen to what he's really saying. What he's really saying is a lie. All right. Let's just focus on that. Sorry. I got a little mad today. I apologize for that. All right. That's all I got. We have a really good, uh, really fun episode with Issa Rae, the great Issa Rae coming up. And, uh, but before that, let's just have a little word. All right, let's start with the laugh. All right, we're back with one of my favorite people in the world. I'm so happy that she uh, joined us here. She is the star of HBO's 
a hit new show called Insecure, currently in its second breakout season. She's the one and only Issa Ray. Issa. Hey, Larry. Welcome to the show. You're one of my favorite people, too. Issa, you are one of my favorite people in the world. I. And you've met my daughter. You know that's true. That's beautiful. Yes. I love your daughter. Your daughter is amazing. <clears throat> so is your son. Um, no, I mean, she would tell you that is what I'm saying. She would tell me that I'm not shit if I wasn't shit. She would tell me that I'm not stuff if I'm not stuff. No, you can say shit. Uh, I didn't mean that. I was just disagreeing with you. (laughs) 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 It doesn't matter what you say here. Okay, good to Um, But not only, uh, I'm a big fan of not just of your work, but I'm a fan of you. Okay. Uh, When I met Issa, I was very, very fortunate to be in the fortunate position of collaborating with her in Insecure. But meeting you the first time and learning who you were, I just saw this this unbelievable creative spirit and creative mind, Mm. right? And um, you're a superhero to a lot of young girls right now. You really are. I don't even know if you realize what's happening because you're like in the eye of the hurricane right now. I don't think about that. Can you feel any of that going on? No. Really? I'm in it. I don't know. I don't don't want to know. I kind of don't want to know. That's a lot of pressure. And to even say that, and hearing you say that, you know, compliments make me uncomfortable, first of all. That's why I'm giving them to you right now at the beginning. Stop. All right. So, but every superhero has an origin story. So I want to go back a little bit. And I know you talked about this a lot, but the question I want to ask is what made you first want to create? Um, seeing my older brother, my older brother, Mm -hmm. my oldest brother wrote a book, Mm -hmm. like just made it. Um, he printed something on the computer. He bound it. With the, like cardboard and I mean he was like in eighth grade and he won a a prize for it you know he like won a prize for his writing. What was the book? Was it? It was called They Call Me King. It was just a a story about a baseball Uh player, a young baseball player, and I just remember thinking that was the coolest thing ever Uh and wanting to write stories too. And I come from a family of great storytellers and wanted to. I just love the feeling of. Putting pen to paper, of opening a new notebook and and just telling a story. Are both your parents storytellers? Um, they. My dad tells excellent stories. Really? What, what kind of stories does he tell? He's you know <laughs> he's from Senegal, so he has a right. lot of like just folklore. He talks uh-huh. about you know he tells really funny stories about people because he observes people a lot and he's really keen <laughs> okay. about just like. Like he, I think I'd like to think that he's empathetic and he can just uh-huh. feel people's embarrassment. Like he's not just slamming people. No, like he's not slamming kind of, people. Right? He's not a he's not a mean spirited guy, right. but he loves to laugh at people. <laughs> like he does at people's behavior. He loves to laugh at people's behavior. Right. And I think my mom is the same way. Like she uh-huh. are both your parents from Senegal? No, just my my dad. Okay. My mom's from Louisiana. Oh, okay, and they met in France. Mm-hmm. And I think their sense of humor aligns in in that they're just very like. Observational. What were they doing in France? They were going to the University of Bordeaux. Okay. Yeah. So that's where you learn all about that wine, I guess. Right? <laughs> <laughs> There's a Bordeaux wine. <laughs> Wait, isn't that what Bordeaux is? Wait, I don't, honestly, we have different ideas of this. Know anything about that? <laughs> right. But yeah, they were. Stud- I know she was studying French, mm-hmm. and he was coming from Senegal. I think he was like in the military. I don't know. I need to know more about that. You them. have no idea how your parents feel, right? They just told you some shit and you just you say, okay. You, she's probably not even from Louisiana. <laughs> They're not together. It that was one matter. of the stories your parents made up was they how probably, they met. Yeah, they probably did. There you probably go. That was the first did. story. Yeah. It, didn't, it didn't count. Uh-huh. So you kind of had it. It was kind of in the genes, storytelling, something that you wanted to do. Definitely. So did you use anything as a guide or was there any specific person who you looked to as inspiration for when you first, because you you first kind of struck out in college, or did you do it earlier? When I did you, it earlier. 
earlier. Okay, I started well, what writing was the plays. Thing? I started writing plays in church. Oh, nice. Yeah. So you wrote churchy plays. Yeah, I wrote a play called my my church was full of old people. Right. That was that the name of the play? It was called The Old and the Rested. Nice. And my mm. my uh reverend actually encouraged me when when we put it uh-huh. on like I put it on, my mom directed it, we cast it. That's hilarious. And he was just impressed. He was like, "This is good." When I was in 6th right. grade, he was like, "This is good. You should do this." <laughs> was it a black church? Yeah, it was. It was a really bougie black church. Oh, okay. Because a lot of those black churches, they always want to do plays that have <laughs> that have King and Malcolm in them. You know? No, I was not <laughs> about that. Jesus life. shows up at the same time. <laughs> it was more like, <laughs> <laughs> what's Jesus doing with? <laughs> what? <laughs> with Malcolm knew Jesus. Yes, wasn't exactly. he Muslim? I thought it was Muslim, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, Jesus knows all those brothers here. <laughs> no, it wasn't. I could not write anything like that. It was actually satirical and kind of making fun of the politics of the church because really? it was just, you know, I, I had been observing just the dynamics of the church uh-huh. and a lot of the old people felt kind of just stilted and and, and mm-hmm. wouldn't didn't want to progress and let the youth kind of shine in right, a way. They were right. really traditionalist. What and was the reaction to it? Did people they laughed. Oh, they really right. laughed. They liked uh-huh. being made fun of. And I was a kid, so it's not like, you right, know, right. my... My oh, that's cute. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She doesn't know what she's right. talking she about. She called me a bitch. She's, yeah, right. she's not talking about me. <laughs> so I think that's when I got the bug and then started continuing to write. And then, like, before that, I, I went to my first TV show taping, you know, moving from Maryland to L.A. What was that? It was Moesha, which was, like, for a girl, like, mm. a young black girl like me to go there um, and see, you know, one of my favorite TV right. shows live. Yeah. And then I got a script. You were talking about a guide. Uh-huh. Like, I felt like that was the template. Like, I had uh-huh. a TV show script, and I started using that to model writing television shows. Did you get a chance to meet Brandy? Or? No, I didn't. I uh-huh. never got a chance to meet her yeah. in life. But she tweeted me recently, so it's like I met her. A 12-year-old yeah. me would have been happy. Yeah. And so that's when you were in, so you were in college at that time or? No, when I got that script, I was in middle school. Okay, you were in middle school. Yeah, this was all middle school. Um, And then I just got into acting in high school. So you were performing early too. You weren't just creating, you were also performing at that time. That wasn't something that came later? I was. I mean, I performed in the fifth grade. And uh-huh. then I wanted to get into acting. Wait, you're smiling. What happened? Because I got cast as Demetrius <laughs> uh-huh. in A Midsummer Night's Dream. And obviously oh, nice. that's a boy's part. And uh-huh. I was a tomboy in the fifth grade. But like right. that's what made me catch the acting bug. But to be fair, in Shakespeare's day, all the men played that's the women true. parts. That's true. Yeah. That's true. So to their go. credit. And right. But I was still one of the only girls to play a boy part. Uh-huh. But whatever. I was also one of the only black people. It was racist. But Were you in Maryland during that time? I was or? in Maryland, yeah. Right. In Potomac. Yeah. And so moving to, I got caught the acting bug. And so moving to L.A., oh. I wanted my mom to put me in acting and? classes. She signed up. Well, I had her sign up for yeah. this like thing called Kids and Teens. We heard a commercial what on the called? radio. Kids and Teens. Kids and Teens. It was a teens. scam. I heard it. It like, sounds they had like a, a scam. Like a van's going to come pick you up. I mean, they might as well <laughs> have. They took all our money. Um, and she paid like so much money for headshots or money yeah. for acting classes. Yeah. And we just got scammed. And I kind of just let that go until high school. So she was a little done at that point. She was yeah. kind of done at that point. Mm-hmm. And because it was just like they would constantly ask you for money. And I just was embarrassed at that point, too, because uh-huh. I wasn't booking. <laughs> we weren't doing auditions. Right. They didn't fulfill any promises. Were you in a predominantly white high school? My I I moved from a predominantly white middle school to a predominantly black high school. Oh, so you went from oh man, <laughs> I know what that feels like. Mm-hmm. You were in a, you were the only black kid in the white school or one of the outcasts. Definitely. And now you go to the black school and, and what did it feel like there? 
Um, I kept on. I was like a ping pong. So I went from mm-hmm. white to black in middle school, and that was jarring. But right. I learned a lot of lessons. Right. I'm like, okay. And then by the time I got to, then I went to private school. Like, where like was, when you say, okay, this part of my life, I got to black up a little bit. I got to black get. up a, a <laughs> bit more because I am not what people define as black. Right. Like, what black people aren't saying I'm not black enough. White people are saying you're not black. And mm-hmm. so I was just like, that's weird. And so when I got to private school around white people, I blacked it up. I was like, well, mm-hmm. these white people don't know what black people are, so I'm going to be super black. Right. Um, and I talk about like having written essays in Ebonics, and, <laughs> which is what it was called at the time, Ebonics, right. which isn't even a thing anymore. And then when I, by the time I got went to my all-black high school, I was just like, girl, shut the fuck up. Just mm-hmm. be smart. You're not going to be like the hottest girl in school. You're not going to mm-hmm. be the funniest you're not going to be, you know, you can try to be the smartest. Like, right. that's what you can do. And you can try to pursue what it is that you like to do, which is writing. So did you, oh, that's interesting. So did you feel like you were kind of losing who you were, but then by just not giving a fuck, you were kind of finding who you were? In a sense, I just uh-huh. didn't want to take a chance. Like, I'd, I had been performing myself for mm-hmm. so long to the point where I was just like, I don't want to. I don't want to have to perform my blackness for anybody, my coolness for anybody at this right. point. I just want to, I want to get into a good, I want to get into college. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to pursue my dreams and, or not even my dreams yet, but just pursue something that I'm good at and find mm-hmm. out what I'm good at. Did you have dreams of making a business out of it at the time? I did. I still mm-hmm. wanted to pursue acting right. in high school. And I think I had, you know, I was in mm-hmm. plays all four years. I had an amazing drama teacher who encouraged right. me. Um, and I, I thought I wanted to pursue theater. How important do you think is encouragement at that age? Come on. I think it's very important. There's an age, there's a sweet spot where it can make or break certain kids. Absolutely. You know? yeah. It's like teachers matter so much. Yeah, you know? I agree. And if you have terrible teachers, yeah. then they can completely discourage you and break your spirit. Yeah. You know? I, I had a great teacher. He was from, uh, I think he was from Brazil. He was from Peru. He mm. and his wife were from Peru. And he used to always play the guitar in class. What grade? Seventh grade. Oh, okay. Sh- That's one of those sweet spot ages. And I used to always make jokes in class and just do impressions. Like I used to do impressions of all the nuns and that kind of stuff. And some friends of mine, we used to just do that. And then he got so tired of me disrupting the class. He said, look, Larry, here's what we're going to do. At the end of lunch, there's about 10 or 15 minutes when, you know, people are settling down and everything. That's going to be joke time. You can, <laughs> you can have that Genius. time and you can do whatever you want. I don't care. He says, but... For the rest of the day, I don't want to hear a peep out of you. That's genius. Yes, and I said, deal. (laughs) And so I gathered my friends together, and during lunch, we would come up with, you know, just plays or stuff like this or fun stuff to do. And I'd kind of be the the host of it and doing jokes, doing impressions. My friend would do—he'd go in the closet, do sound effects, and I'd be playing something. And it was hilarious. And you actually held up your end of the deal in terms of— Completely. But also, it it just really— it was a lesson in focusing Heck what you're yeah. doing and putting it, you know, doing it in a way that was channeled to do something interesting out of it, you know. That's so smart. I, I considered him an angel along the way, you know, because there were kids in my life. I grew up in the kind of neighborhood where kids had so much potential and it was the neighborhood that was on a decline. Mm-hmm. And I saw like a lot of my friends who went to the public school at the time I was going to Catholic school who just got lost. Completely. And they had so much potential. This one friend of mine, he was one of the best basketball players I had seen, and he was smart as a whip, too. Like, he had both of those things, you know? Um, He wasn't a dumb jock or something like that. We could talk about anything. We were both the the jock nerds, Mm because I was that, and I was good in sports, too, you know? And uh, 
so I looked up to him because he was really good. And he started just, I think at the time, I don't know what it was. Um, what was it? Um, like PCP or something like that. Right. He was smoking in high school. It was a shame. He said he was a shell of himself by the time he was a senior. That's real. It, it almost made me cry because I love that dude. That happened know? to me in my school because yeah. my, my high school was on the border of Compton and Watts. Yeah. And I think that's also what triggered me just seeing like, you know, people that I was friends with. Yeah. Sh- choose a specific path and there right. was a guy that I went to school with um, we started off in the same homeroom super sweet like right. nerdy dude long hair like just cool and super like a gentleman yeah. and I watched him and he was always very nice to me when guys weren't really nice to sure, me sure. and so I always just remembered him <laughs> yeah. and I watched him as I went down this path with amazing teachers mm-hmm. he went down the path of like newer teachers started hanging out with like mm-hmm. you know just different dudes and he literally transformed into a gangster, like a, wow. a thug. And wow. he just became a different part. And he was feared, yeah. you know? And, you know, now he he went to jail a couple of times. I looked him up on Facebook because I always wonder, whatever happened to him? I he love was the, the, nice. the gangsters on are Facebook. Are still on Facebook. Like, yeah, like that's gangsters hilarious. just, they, right. they love Facebook because right. everybody's on Facebook. It's old people time. You got to check his stories on Instagram. <laughs> you got <laughs> to check up on the homies and the hoes on Facebook. But he's alive. Thank God. I was just happy to know that he was alive. Right. But I just remember seeing, like, you could have a, a clear vision of someone choosing a different path. Right. Do you feel like when, so you went to Stanford, right? Uh-huh. Okay, try. And uh, were you still writing at Stanford? Definitely. I was mm-hmm. still writing. I wanted to perform you know, because I wanted to go to NYU, right. and I said that that's the best thing. My parents not wanting me to go to NYU is the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh-huh. Well, um, what was their reasoning? Because 9-11 had happened like the year before, and my mm. brother also, my older brother, lived in New York, and he would always be like, it's terrible here, don't come. Yeah. But visiting him, I loved the city. Mm-hmm. But I visited it and saw I didn't have a campus, and when I visited Stanford, it was just like, everybody was so nice, it was right. beautiful. And I think because I went there and because I was perf- pursuing the performing arts mm-hmm. and and writing and directing, I stood out more because people right. were pursuing human biology and engineering mm-hmm. and law. And, you know, if I had, had gone to NYU, that's that's a drama school. That's where right. people you have go. Right, you school there and everything. You have to prove There's not an more. expectation at Stanford no. that you're going to come out and, and be like, in showbiz. And or, being, right. and I'm not going to lie, like the plays that I put on, I put on plays there, they yeah. were terrible. They weren't well, good. Looking back, say, but, looking back, they right. were not good. But Did it have I Jesus and Malcolm n- and King? <laughs> <laughs> that would have made it excellent, Larry. But I mean, right. looking back on that, like being able to experiment and kind of suck at a place that wasn't known yes. for right. performing arts helped that. me. Right. Is that And that's where you developed Awkward Black Girl for the first time, right? I developed my first web series there that wasn't it Awkward It wasn't Black. Awkward Black yeah, Girl. Was I it a cousin to it or... It wasn't even close. No, what I wasn't was it? in it. It was called Dorm Diaries about being black. It was a mockumentary about what it was like to be black at Stanford. Was there a significant black population at Stanford at all? There was. Okay. We were the behind HBCUs. We were the top. Really, school Stanford for, was. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, oh. it had a great like black community. And in, Stanford sounds like a black name when you think about it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yo Stanford. <laughs> yeah, that's obviously right. why so many black people go there. It, I think that's why crossed. because of the name. Yeah. I, I think so, yeah. Of course, you can make any name sound black just by deepening your voice. Yo, Berkeley. <laughs> and saying yeah. yo in front yeah, of me. Yeah, exactly. Yo, yo, UCLA. 
Come here, man. <laughs> what is wrong with you, man? So I'm just speaking the truth. I mean, I'm just saying facts. So, so there was a, a an enclave, I guess, of black students. Did you guys hang out together? Was there? There was like a black house, but I was mm-hmm. the only one from my school that didn't get accepted into the black house. Ooh, no. Jenna. It was really messed up. Wait, so you were trying to get... Wait, wait so even Stanford was like this? They you rejected me. Out of, why? There were five of us from my high school who got into Stanford. Uh-huh. And I'm sorry, there were six I got in, five who went. And all five of us applied to the black house. Four of them got in. I was the only one that did not get into the black house. It was messed up. You were a freshman? Yeah, I was a college freshman. Did you try again later? No, after that, I was like, fuck this house. I don't even want to be here, stupid ass house. But I was there all the time. Right. You hung out there? I did end up hanging out there. But it was a strong community. Yeah. And uh, so were your, were your, uh, the stuff that you were writing was, so that was about, dear, what was it called again? It was called Dorm Diaries. Dorm Diaries. Mm-hmm. So, and that was about that experience. That was then. about that experience. And okay. that was my first, like I was simultaneously trying to break into the industry just traditionally right. through contests, through Sundance script. And, mm-hmm. So and you knew you wanted to be in showbiz at I knew that I time. wanted to be, yeah, to uh-huh. pursue it. Because I met a girl who was also like super ambitious and um, a, a great writer. And mm-hmm. it was like, she was like, let's write a script together. And mm-hmm. we wrote that and took time off of school to go to LA and pitch it. Mm-hmm. And then we had an experience there that didn't work out. And I went back to school. She stayed longer. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm spending a lot of time online on YouTube and Facebook. Mm-hmm. Let me make a series just right. to see, just cause I can. Just and to see what would happen. That's what's interesting about technology today mm-hmm. too, is you can, your entry is, doesn't have to be determined by someone letting you in or not. That was the appeal that I, didn't, yeah. uh, that I realized later too, of just mm-hmm. like, I'm literally, trying to network with people, trying to find execs to, right. to, to read my stuff. And I, I created something and there's no middleman. Like there's right. an audience that's enjoying it and it's spreading and yeah. I can, I can just make something and, yeah. for people. That's great. Yeah. When I was coming up, it was like, no niggas. Real though. No, no. The I door is closed right now. It's yeah. so true. There is a door where like right. there was a door to open and close and, and here the technology provides you an opportunity to, in essence, like create a door, right. you know? So, um, Awkward Black Girl, which was your breakout web series, it's yes. the one that got you the most attention. When did you develop that? So, if I, de- I developed my first web series in 2007, Awkward Black Girl, I didn't do till 2011. Mm-hmm. And that was my third web series, and the only one that I ended up putting myself in just out of... So, you had already developed a following, I guess, at that point? For my for, second web series, yeah. For people who saw you as kind of the impresario behind this, right? They did, yes. Mm-hmm. And so by Which the time, is kind of nice, right? It was nice. I yeah. built a reputation for creating online work. Yeah. A very, very small base of a couple thousand people. Mm-hmm. And so for me, creating The Awkward Black Girl was the scariest because I was in it. And I yeah. was like, you know, I saw... I, I created right. my brother's show was the second popular web series that, that gave me a, a little bit of... What was the name of that? It was called Fly Guys uh-huh. Present the F Word. The name of their music group was called... <laughs> they were called The Fly Guys. Right. Your they brother rappers. created this? No, I created the show around his music group because they're just such okay. funny guys. And so oh, that was yes. another mockumentary series about them trying to make it in the music industry in L.A. Right. Like a Flight mm-hmm. of Concords type of vibe. Sure, and, that was very funny. And I saw the comments that they would get online. They would, people mm-hmm. would just be like, y'all ugly, y'all gay. <laughs> like just crazy things, your head shaped y'all weird. Y'all gay. And I was like, Ugh, people online are so mean, but at least they're not talking about me. Yeah. And so like thinking about <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah, putting myself out there was... Yes. It was quite scary. So you felt this was the right time. I need to just put myself out there and just do something different. I did. And because, right. you know, I, I watch a lot of TV, as, mm-hmm. as you know, we always talk about TV. Mm-hmm. And 
I was just like, you know, after a while, you're just like, where are the people that I know? Where mm-hmm. are the black people that I know? Like, reality TV is cool. Mm-hmm. I'm an avid Now, when you watcher. say where are the black people that I know, what, what do you mean by that? But like the viewers or the, what do you mean? People on screen. Like on the screen. characters that I was seeing, like black characters that like I was seeing. I was like, I don't on? know anybody that, that's like that, mm-hmm. you know? Or... Like I'm watching uh, 30 Rock and I'm watching The Office and I want to know more about those black characters. Why are they just the sideline, uh, you know, characters on the show? Mm -hmm. And just wanting to see more of my friends and and people that I could relate to on television screen and and realizing that, oh, I could I could create that. And for you, it wasn't just racial. I mean, some of it was probably generational. Um, maybe yes. gender as well. All of the above, yeah. because it's definitely generational. Because I always credit the '90s for mm-hmm. having so much representation of, yeah. of you know various types of characters and, mm-hmm. and black people and women, and then feeling like that just disappeared over time. Yeah. What was the What was the hardest part about writing for yourself then initially? Um, Being the face of something, you yeah. know. I think just not wanting to. And I had been. I had stopped acting for so long. Like I hadn't acted in about like eight or nine years. Did you think you weren't going to do it anymore? Yeah. I was comfortable Mm -hmm. with just like being behind the scenes. I loved directing. I loved writing. Right. You know, I was getting into editing, so I was just prepared for that. And so even just feeling like rusty performing and not necessarily into it. Even now, like being on a Uh show, I'm just like, that's not my favorite part about it. We always talk about all the time. We love being just behind the scenes. We're kind of shy performers. Exactly. Exactly. Um, But you know, when it's, when it's fun, it's fun. Yes, it can be a lot of fun. Sometimes I find it can be distracting when you're looking at the big picture because you have to be so focused on this this particular thing oh that my you're God. doing. So yeah. true. Yeah. So true, especially if you're multitasking. Right. Like you you want to focus on, okay, what what's this other scene that we're going to do? And yeah. I, I have to be present in this scene currently. And right. then, you know, how it's all going to cut together. And there's just always something to think about. Right. I met Issa, I guess, 2013. At that point, you had already um, gone down the road at the network level trying to create a show for yourself. Right. It didn't turn out too well, or it didn't just, as the network things go, there was a combination of process and things yeah. just didn't quite fit, right? Is yeah, that fair? Yeah, I think it, mm-hmm. it didn't fit. And then, you know, one of the things I credit you with is just like I didn't feel like I had a, a voice. Mm-hmm. You know, I had one, but I wasn't using it because I didn't right. know how to. And right. I didn't know Speaking, what I wanted to say. And by voice, for people that aren't the writers out there, you're talking about speaking up for yourself for that which makes your point of view special. Yes. Right? Yes. And I don't think that I realized that my point of view was special. Mm-hmm. You know, I, there's this thing where you get you get hired and and you're kind of, you want to please the network. Right. Not knowing that they hired you to have a specific point of view to for right. your for what you have to say. And I right. think I got lost in what I wanted to say just in terms right. of trying to say what they wanted me to You're say. Like, well, these people are the experts. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, you sure. just credit them I mean, with being the experts. I mean, it makes sense, right. They, ha- they brought me here for a reason. And, and it was a great experience working with, mm-hmm. it was a great learning experience. Right. And the people, the production company I was working with, you know, Shondaland, they were outstanding and yeah, super patient. I had never yeah. written anything before <clears throat> and mm-hmm. they really like held my hand through it. And it was just, I just didn't know how to navigate the right. The rest of it. Yeah. Now, for those that haven't seen Awkward Black Girl, what was when I watched Awkward, Awkward Black Girl, I was taken immediately by the intimacy of it. Mm. I thought, wow, this is so intimate. It wasn't action being pushed at you. You were drawn into it. You know, we were drawn into you as a character. Um, like this, 
people, I don't know if they'll understand, but I liken you to a Meryl Streep type of actor. Larry and said. here's what I mean by it. You guys have, there's a public solitude about your work. You know, you're not, I mean, Meryl seems showy, but she's mm. really very private, you know. Absolutely. And there's, she has a public solitude about what she's doing. She's completely alone and you get to see her being alone mm. in this thing that she's doing. And I feel that's how you work, you know, in some ways you. where you're very quiet in what you do, but it's so interesting, you know, and I was drawn by that when I first saw it, mm-hmm. I was like, who's this, you know, and it had kind of a feel of the office and it was funny. It had some funny satirical jokes, right. but it was, it was your presence that I thought was interesting about it that I thought was a show, you know, that's dope. Did, and did HBO, so HBO approached you, about was it about developing awkward black girl or they just wanted to be as as they say in showbiz we want to be in the Issa Rae business like which or was it a combination I of think that it was a combination was it? they had okay. seen awkward black girl and they were just like do you have anything else that you want to do like uh-huh. that you know it was in the van so they liked that and they said hey if you have other ideas yeah and I would I didn't want to do awkward black girl at that right. point you know we had 24 episodes online I produced right. the second season with Fennet for all I was like that's done. that story's been <laughs> yes. told I'm done I want to do something else right and given that it was on HBO I wanted to do something more a bit more grounded you know and, right. and more representative of where I was then at least right and so even in in pitching it like you know you saw the pitch initially yeah they once they bought it they were like you know well you should consider we, we both have three yards we're at three yards in yes. UTA and right. so they were like you should meet with Larry and I was like yeah I'd love right. to meet him <laughs> right right and so, you know, you never know. Like, obviously, I followed your work. Absolutely, you never and, know. And, you know, right. you might not have been into it. You might right. have been like, what's this? You might not have been into me. So I had no expectations right. going into the meeting except meeting you. Yeah. And I think just meeting you for the first time and being able to just be on the same page and just no, laugh and be cool. I like think immediately. you had just seen Frank Ocean or something and we were talking we, about that. That was the second time <laughs> we, went, we had gone in, yeah. When we, when we, right. When we actually got to, to sit down and talk, I think you were my good luck, luck charm because I got to meet. Yeah. I got to meet Bay, and we were, la- <laughs> but we were laughing immediately just being around each other. Yeah. And I thought, and then I, I remember asking you, "Why don't we just write this together?" You know, and I was surprised yeah. by that. I was like, <laughs> right. "Oh, he wants to write this with me. This is this is great." And I think that was yeah. just even just the process of actually sitting down. And like I said, I felt like yeah. you tricked me because we were I did having trick you a little bit yeah. such authentic, like honest yes. conversations. Yes. like on your rooftop. <laughs> yes. So, so what happened was the way that we. It, this was kind of developed was me interviewing Issa without her knowing that I was but actually But you weren't being Issa. open too so it just I didn't was. feel like an interview yeah. it just but felt I was, like it was it was yeah, conversation asking her a thousand questions because well to me um, the starting point the document that you had at HBO it was, it was one of those things when you're starting to do a show and you have like a rough of the characters but I was looking at it and I remember saying I said I don't know what this show is about right. yet and so I said let's find out what it's about mm-hmm. and those were our early conversations and just finding out what you were going through in your life and that kind of stuff and then we we landed on well this may be about somebody who's not quite sure who she is and where she's going right. you know? so okay we have that Okay, now we could put everything on it. Right. But it's like, let's spend the time figuring that out first and put everything on it. Which is also so yeah. smart because, I mean, in working together, you have to know how, you have to know someone's voice, the way someone yes. thinks, the exactly. way someone's personality, what, right. what ticks them off, what, what, what you know, inspires things. them. And, and we got so, so many of those things. I remember asking you the question, so tell me about Issa, <laughs> you know, and I didn't say whether it was character or, or you because, and I know that 
you know, the fact that your character's name Issa is a bit of Ugh, <laughs> is a I bit of that. a conflict, though, because a lot of people like to confuse the two, you know. Right. But your answers are fascinating because you're not afraid to have your character be flawed. No, because we're fact, all flawed. Yes, you're drawn to the flaws, you know. Absolutely. I mean, I think I always say, like, if, you, if someone was following you and your yeah. story, like, right. would they think that you were the hero of yes. your own story? You know, I think professionally, right. a lot of people might have triumphant, right. triumphant stories where yes. they're the hero. But in your personal life, if someone was watching you make decisions right. that you make, would they be yes. like, oh, God, why is he doing that? <laughs> what know. is his problem, exactly. dummy? And, I, and that's, that's what I'm most interested in, yes. the why of those decisions. And I remember when you were listing her qualities— uh, you said she lies. <laughs> and I started laughing. I could not stop laughing because who writes a character for themselves that's a that is a liar or I whatever. Mean, but lying it I was like that's fantastic that you would choose that. I mean know? there's just something about yeah. lying. I mean not being honest with yourself Yes. And then it's a very interesting choice to use she to say she lies. You know, because that takes us. Yes, you're right. We lie to ourselves mm -hmm. all the time. People lead delusional lives, mm -hmm. you know, or there's little delusions mm -hmm. that get in the way. You're writing a show about relationships. I mean, delusions rule the day in relationships. Absolutely. You know? And yeah. I think there's just an opportunity for, for growth there, like from yeah. going to a place of not being honest with yourself to forcing yourself to kind of confront who you are yes. and, and why it is you do what you do. Yes. And I'm always interested exactly. in in stories of, of growth. Right. Now, Issa and I worked on this for a while, and then I left the project to work on Blackish. And when we worked on it, it was kind of a workplace. But then you took it to what it is now, which is more of a relationship show mm -hmm. centered on you and Molly first. Right. And then it's extended out to everybody else. Right. And I think that really draws even more of these issues out. You know, I, I feel like this show has, here's what I call it. I'll call it a, an urgency of ennui. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> That's what, it's like the characters are hurriedly getting their tickets to nowhere. You're so good with words. But that's you what it feels like. You want to come back like. and write on this? They are. What was that? You want to come back and write on this? Can I do that? <laughs> <laughs> but it seems like they're in a hurry to get their tickets to nowhere. Ooh. You know, like that's what they're doing all the time. And they don't know that. And though. they don't know that. That's you know? dope. And I love that about the show that it, it scoops that out in almost every episode. I love that. You know, and but at the center of it is is you doing that and your friends, you know, and part of it. One of the, the big things uh, in the second season, which I love, and by the way, congrats on the first season. It was so nice. Thank you. Uh, there was a, a whole hashtag war out there Man. with Lawrence, who's who's Eve's boyfriend. And all many of you have seen the show, but those that don't. And I won't give spoilers, but let's just say there was a big relationship issue at the end of the first season. And there was a Team Lawrence, hashtag Team Lawrence, yes. hashtag Team Eve. Which we did not anticipate at all. Yes. Now, this had to do with infidelity with Issa's infidelity, mm -hmm. which is a huge issue. Mm -hmm. Why do you think so many people were both upset by that and why it engaged so many people? Because people couldn't stop. Because you have a female character who is just just cheating, right. basically. Mm -hmm. as a, and as a choice, like I said, like the lying thing, it was unapologetic in its performance and in its storytelling. Right. And I th and people I think were taken aback by that, right? Yeah, I think one right. we don't get to, we got invested in this relationship. Right. We saw this, you know, we saw her significant other start from a place of 
He was just in a really shitty place. He was a terrible boyfriend. And right. You know, when we Your first relationship him, was stuck at that time. It too. was stuck right. and you kind of were on her side initially. And then yeah. we tried to, we opened up their relationship and, yeah. and you got to see that they were kind of both at fault. She contributed right. to also the, uh, I guess, why their relationship was so stagnant. Right. And then we got to see them sort of grow together. We yes. got to see him actually try. Right. And yeah. then, you know. When and, we, and you were hopeful. They, we were hopeful that, you yeah. know, they were back on track, but. You know, at some point, she had already opened this door at the first episode. And yeah. once a woman decides, like, I need, I'm opening this door, she's going to walk okay. through it. Once a woman decides I'm opening this door, which door are you talking about? She um, went to, she she revisited an old flame, right. her what if guy, a guy right. that she'd always mm-hmm. wanted to yep. pursue and yeah. kind of got away, you know, right. or was never, it was never the right time. In the back of her mind, it was like, I wish I had done that. I wish I had done that. And then, right. you know, when she had the opportunity in the first episode, he kind of shut her down. And right. so then he came back and I think it, he came back when she was working on a relationship. And I think mm-hmm. then, you know, it didn't, be, it wasn't about her shitty boyfriend who was trying to get his life together. Right. It was about her and fulfilling this this fantasy and being this person that she had set out to be this active person who made different decisions. And I think mm-hmm. once he came back into her life, it, it that well, it's tempting yeah. in a way. And I think people reacted so strongly. One, because, you know, they were rooting for this relationship. And two, right. we didn't realize that our male audience yeah. had grown so much. Like so many yes. people, couples were watching this together. Right. And right. so it became a sort of gender war and, and and men felt betrayed that this person, because Prentice says it best, like, you know, because I don't, I'm, I don't Prentice see myself. Prentice Penny, who's the showrunner. Yes. Mm-hmm. He was like, you're, you're every guy's like regular girlfriend. So yeah. they're watching you and they're seeing their girlfriends and the, the right. betrayal that they felt when your character, who's this everyday girl, yeah. decides to cheat on this everyday guy. Wow. It just yeah. felt like such a huge, you know, right. betrayal. And, uh, and Lawrence only got more likable in every episode. He sure did. Yes. And yeah. I think that, and I think men identified just yeah. with where he was. You know, he wasn't in the best place. He was trying. He was trying, yeah. Uh, but he was it, trying it, to make it, it work. Yeah. In my mind, it just it wasn't about him. Oh, it was about her. Man, yes. You know, so that's the part that I want to focus on. It wasn't about him. It was about her. Yes, and that was. I don't yes. want to have him. Her cheat when he was being a dick. Because you get that. That's right. justifiable. I didn't want it to be justified. I wanted it to be very internal. I wanted it to be an internal yeah, decision. But what's what's interesting about that to me is that female characters are usually in the service of the guy. Completely. In some way. What's subversive about this is that doesn't matter to your character. You love him. You care about him and all that stuff. But you came first. Mm-hmm. You know. And... You coming first causes a shitstorm. It's very interesting to me. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's the response has been so amazing because yeah. people are projecting yeah. to a degree their their own relationships, their own you know histories right. and their past, and and that's what's so interesting to see like the conversations that this right. is sparking around the show. Do you think men are just forgiven more for for that on screen? Yeah, I think there's just um, I don't know. There's something about egos, man. Once you bruise that, you can't. Mm-hmm. The, for some reason, women can't come back from mm-hmm. from cheating. There's just something, and, and that's not to say that some men don't take women back who cheat. Right? You know, I've seen that happen, but there's just something about um, women. W- women aren't expected to do that. You know, mm-hmm. there's just a justification that men have of right. of, of of having a wandering eye, and it's supposed to be emotionless, so mm-hmm. you can come back. And there's a perception that women can't cheat for lust, you know, that we mm-hmm. always have to have our emotions involved. Yeah, for the idea, the traditional idea is like, you know, if, a, if the relationship felt like it was over and a woman's like going to get 
like relief from the UN or something for their relationship. Mm. Like that's why she cheats for a man. It's like, I'm just a dog. Yeah. I'm just going to go. Exactly. You know? And those were like understood, you know. I don't know. It's 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 a double standard for sure. Yeah. I mean, what would you do? Would you take would you take a woman back who's cheating? I think it depends on the situation, but you know, I'm kind of old school, so I can only. What does that mean? Well, <laughs> this is now the Explain. attention turns on Larry. What do we do? <laughs> it's very difficult. I mean, I think it depends on the situation. You I've know? met so many men who just and it depends where we are in the relationship too. So um, if you're with this person for five years, five years is a long time. The relationship might feel like it's over. Ooh, you know, if it's if it's in that place where your relationship was. To me, that might be an indicator that, okay, we're right. It is over. You know, more than how dare you, you hurt me. You can't right. come back. You know, it, it may just be validation for something we were both thinking. Like just off the top of my that's head. That's sure. Yeah. But if somebody makes a mistake, that's different. Mistakes, if you really love each other, I think can be talked through. And I think times. men can make more men, mistakes men, you're than right. women can. I absolutely agree with that. Women, this is what I'm saying. This is what I feel is subversive about it. Women are allowed to make this mistake. Right. right. Well, I'm, I'm excited to see how people respond to the story progressing in the second season. Yes, and in the second season now, you're going through what you have called your hoe phase. Yes. Right. That's, so that's, please that's describe happen. that. A hoe phase is... Mm-hmm. I don't know. It could be a rite of passage that women go through, uh-huh. but it's just basically the the sexual liber- liberation of uh-huh. explore, exploring, uh-huh. you know, your options. And I think for uh-huh. for me, it came like the possibility came during a time where I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm I'm desired at one point. Like, you know, uh-huh. going through so much of middle and high school and just not being checked for at all. Uh-huh. And then finally coming into my own and being, and, and then deciding that I didn't want to be in, you know, being a, a relationship person and deciding I don't uh-huh. want to have that anymore. I just want to uh-huh. explore and I just want to not have feelings and I just want to get my number up and so, <laughs> see what's out there, you know? So in the whole phase, so your feelings have to go to the side? Is your that feelings it? can go to, yeah, your mm-hmm. feelings go to the side and right. it really just is about like just pleasure at the end of the day, mm-hmm. pleasure and exploration. And I feel like every woman has an opportunity to mm-hmm. do that and right. some don't, you know, mm-hmm. I, I break it down. It's one, some don't, some decide not to, some want to mm-hmm. just wait, some spend their whole lives hoeing and right. whether right. it's by choice or just right. because they've, They've been relegated to hoedom right. and others like can just go in and out of the whole phase. Like they can they can have one and then right. just seamlessly leave it and, you know, get married or settle down and right. put it behind them. Do you think in the whole phase when your feelings are shut off, do you think that's more frustrating for guys or when guys are in their whole phase? Or, you know, a guy's whole phase is called his life. Yeah, exactly. I feel like guys just, yeah, it really, it's not a phase. It's just a hoe. Um, and I think it's just hoary. That's it. And that's accepted. And, and, and women, uh-huh. even even that language, like women have to have a phase. You right. know, it's right. like you can't, right. you can't be a hoe for the rest of your life. And men, it's like that's expected of them. Right. But do you? Should women want to be a hoe for all of their life? I well, mean, it's even the label of hoe. I, I say it I because we're claiming. Yeah. Well, maybe I did bring up <laughs> yeah, hoe. Yeah. I'm like, I didn't bring up hoe. Actually, I did bring up hoe. No, it's, I think that it's <laughs> it's definitely a choice. Like, should mm-hmm. women want to be? Like, some women just want to have sex. There's some women that don't want to settle down. They just right. want to have fun. And I feel like that's it's just not socially acceptable. And Do you so think you age makes a difference it. with your hoe phase? 
Yeah, I think so. Like even in me getting started with my whole phase, I was like, oh, I'm about to do this. And then I <laughs> fell in love in my 20s and was like, you know, by the time I got to my 30s, I was like, oh, is it too late? Is it too late for me to hoe? Yeah. Um, but I don't I don't know that there <laughs> there is like George right. Clooney just got married. So nobody's calling him a hoe. He had a long hoe phase. He had a very long right. hoe life and yeah. just decided to settle down. Madonna yeah. has had a well, she's had several marriages, right? Doesn't mean she left her hoe face. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Madonna is pretty. She's been great about her hoe face. It seems. Yeah. I think I don't know about Janet Jackson. Yeah. Janet Jackson had hoe songs, but I don't know if she had like a whole life. Right. Yeah. Because she's never been married, right? No, she was yeah. married to Jermaine Dupri. But if you mix the Jehovah's Witness stuff in there, <laughs> then it gets real complicated. I, yeah. Right. Okay. I think Congress Jehovah's. is going through a whole phase because they're just trying to fuck everybody right now. Come on. Up top. <laughs> no, come on. not. Nope. Come on. He's, what? Mm-mm. I don't get anything for that. <laughs> that was, come on. No. God, you guys, Issa's just looking at me right now, you guys. Mm-mm. She gives me that. That was a quality professional this joke. This took me back to <laughs> our writing process. This is how we work together, actually. Uh what would you? What advice would you give to someone who says they want to be just like you? Mm, to meet people who are better than you and as passionate as mm-hmm. you are and to work with them. Like collaboration is the best mm-hmm. thing that, you know, I've only had great opportunities come from collaboration and from being mm-hmm. open and from meeting people who, you know, I got, a, a, I, I felt a connection with that I got along sure. with that were smarter than I was or more skilled in a certain area. But I, I always knew what I brought to the table, you mm-hmm. know, and I think um, working with people kind of on your level is the best thing you can do. You have, a, I've always felt. And growing like, with them. Right. I, you have a, such a great sense of humility. It seems like you have a good relationship with ego and that type of thing. Is that something you you learn from your parents, you think, in the home? Or is it is it something that you kind of use as a way to get through. Showbiz is such a tough Mm. field to be in because egos are just out of control. Yeah, they are. I don't know. I just, I find myself not thinking about it. Like I Mm -hmm. am who I am and I know I don't like to. It comes from being comfortable, you think? Uh, no, definitely. <laughs> no. Larry, never I from... created awkward black girl. Hello. <laughs> Nothing not comes from a place of comfort for me, but it uh-huh. is just about like loving what I do. And I, I feel like being able to suss out genuine people. I've been lucky and fortunate enough right. to work with people who are genuine mm-hmm. and being able to know like, okay, that person is a lot. And I think over time I've just been able to kind of um, use my gut instinct to, to, to select Good people, right. you know, for the most part. I've mm-hmm. definitely been burned here and there. But, yeah, it, it comes sure. from home. It comes from parents definitely checking me in, at a young age and mm-hmm. always reminding me that I'm not better than anybody. But yeah. uh, to also be, you know, confident in, in what it is I bring to the table. So it's th- that balance I just carry with me. Mm-hmm. Do you get to meet uh, young people while you're doing the show and traveling and all? Or are you just kind of... <sighs> My young people, like... Uh, college age people some mm-hmm. high school people but I try to stay away from young people because I don't feel like I'm creating stuff for them right now and I, that makes me that bums me out that's interesting because my work is not currently for like young girls it's not for uh-huh. and so when you said that in the beginning of just like people are looking to you I don't believe that yet and I don't think they should well I don't know if you can choose your followers I know but they shouldn't yeah. be watching it my mom I mean Jesus did and look what it got him <laughs> Right. <laughs> You're really our Jesus today. Right. Is that what the episode's going to be called? Yes, Jesus and Larry? Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I want to be able to 
to reach younger girls. I want to think about mm-hmm. like sixth grade me and, and the role model that she would have. Cause mm-hmm. my mom would never let me watch me at this, at this age. Like, yeah, yeah, and I would, think about that. Yeah. She would not let you watch. Insecure. She gets mad. She's like, why did I waste my time putting parental controls on the television screen when you were going to create the very show that I would prevent you from watching? Yeah. But she watches that shit. So, ah, mom, you love my shit. <laughs> so like your mom's been on it, right? Yeah. She has been on it. Yeah. yeah. So yep. not she only has, that, she's on, she's, she's on yeah. this show. What would you tell uh, that sixth grade Issa? What would you tell her right now? Uh, it give it gets better, and mm-hmm. none of this matters right now. Mm-hmm. Just you are enough. Mm-hmm. That's it. We, yeah. And uh, what's what's next for you, Issa? Are you gonna after <laughs> this? Is this something that you want to keep doing? Is creating vehicles for yourself? Because I know you you're very entrepreneurial too. Do you you want to create more television? I do. Mm -hmm. I want to create more television. I want to work in film and write Mm -hmm. film. Um, Try and work with you again. What? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Anytime. I I think it's the other way around. (laughs) Come on. And I want to just explore like the other... The other mediums that are out there, like obviously right. podcasting is is mm-hmm. huge. We we did like a scripted um, you guys a podcast have an, drama. Have an insecurity is that f- that's yeah, through by a, your show that's or? through HBO yeah that's through HBO uh-huh. okay. but like even like just exploring the different ways we can tell stories and yes the different types of stories we can tell and that's why yeah. I'm definitely interested in collaborating with other great right. and un, uh, underrepresented storytellers and yeah. um, just you know the sky's the limit. Well, she's from Senegal. Apparently, they got a lot of storytellers there. She's got the Senegalese. Griots. Yep. And that Louisiana gumbo storytelling. Hello. There There you go. (laughs) I'm just, I have no idea what any of this means. But uh, I think all of us want Issa Rae to keep telling more stories in in the way that she's she's doing. Catch the second season of Insecurity, guys. It's really amazing. You don't want to miss the whole phase. No, you don't. You don't want to miss that. Issa, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Larry. Love you, girl. Always a pleasure. Love you, Beth. Love you much. Nope, love you, both. Love you more. Love you more. (laughs) Thanks, Issa.